This is the word of the Lord to you and I. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they, went, uh, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where their child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fill, fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us. We thank you for the um, beautiful gift of life that you've given us. And we thank you especially for this wonderful story that you've given us in your word that speaks to us about the life of Jesus. Father, we pray as we spend the next few minutes considering just how wonderful and persistent your love is for us that we come away with a greater sense of wonder and joy and awe at the lengths that you have gone to to save us from our sin and our selfishness. And that would fill our hearts with gratitude. We pray that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, if you've, uh, if you've been with us the last three or four weeks, we've had a wonderful Advent series where we've studied uh, out of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, Rob had this great idea of one, you know, this is the last week of the year before we start the new year, and Rob had this great idea of taking a look at uh, the narrative out of Matthew 2, which is actually the post-birth narrative. And if you're familiar with child's plays or nativity scenes, Luke 2 and Matthew 2 usually get smushed into one little crowded scene on your coffee table or your bookshelf. On ours, it's on a bookshelf. Where you see these three kings, you see the shepherds, you see the baby Jesus, they're all at one little party. Uh, not social distancing at all. And, um, <laughs> singer. Um, 
that's not the case here. Matthew 2 actually takes, it's really interesting, Matthew uh, 2, the events of this chapter actually take place some months after Jesus is born. And uh, what we want to do is just talk about uh, those events after Jesus is presented in the temple. And there's a lot going on in this passage. If you're familiar with Matthew, he writes with a very thick style. His gospel is very loaded. And this chapter in particular is loaded with things that we won't be able to cover. So what I do want us to do is just take a few minutes to take a devotional look at uh, this event, at the wise men at um, Herod and the kings, and most importantly about God and how he comes to you and I. And uh, my hope is that we'll be able to walk away with a sense of wonder and joy. Um, so often we get so familiar with the Christmas story, the story of Jesus being born, we get very familiar with it, and we're going to see that in a minute, that that can have a negative effect on our faith. And my hope is that we'll come with a, a way with a renewed sense of joy in Jesus and the lengths that he goes to. For you and I, if there's ever a year that seems hell-bent on destroying our sense of joy in Christmas, I would say it's 2020. <laughs> so, <clears throat> The main idea of this passage is really simple, that Jesus meets you and I wherever we're at. That's true for the spiritual seeker, as we're going to see in the beginning of this chapter. That's true for uh, what we could call the spiritual insider, those that are very familiar with Scripture, with the Word of God, or with Jesus. And bottom line, that it's familiar with every one of us that Jesus has come to save. So let's do that one by one. First, uh, perhaps my favorite group, the spiritual seeker. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, this account is much revered uh, as a subject to children's plays. It's often misrepresented, but if you're like me and your kids are in it, or your kids are in it, it doesn't matter because you love kids. Kids in a play, misreading their lines just makes me happy, so it's fine. But uh, it's interesting if you read Matthew, how much he doesn't include in this account about the characters. Some we know about, like King Herod. We know about Jesus. He's the centerpiece of all of Scripture, right? Uh, the wise men, we actually don't know that much about. Um, a few things that will help us here historically and uh, as a bit of context for them and where they came from. One, um, a common misconception is that they were kings and they actually weren't. Um, the word here that's used here for them is actually magoi or magoi, magoi, and that's actually where we get the word magicians from. Uh, but when you think about that, it doesn't mean that these were like um, parlor trick magicians that you and I would think of. These were men who would be considered the intellectual elite of their day. Uh, they would be into things like consulting astronomy as a source of um, gaining insight and wisdom into world events or political events or spiritual events. Uh, they would be well-versed in ancient religions. And what we also know about them, the text says that they were from the east. It doesn't tell us exactly where. Some people say they were from um, Arabia or somewhere in the Orient. But one of the things that's interesting about these figures is that I think the best theory is, and Rob's preached about this before too, I believe, is that I think that they were actually from uh, what we know as the kingdom of Babylon. And there's some good reasons for that. Number one, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, Babylon actually was a place where the nation of Israel was taken in captivity to during the exile. God brought the nation of Israel out of their land and they were drug away by the kingdom of Babylon. And they lived there. The book of Daniel actually talks about how the prophet Daniel became one of the most well-respected and well-renowned 
uh, known officers in the royal court of Babylon. So they would know the Hebrew scriptures is the point here. And they would know especially the prophetic scriptures that we see referenced a couple times in this text. Uh, second, they came talking about the kind of things that wise men from the east from Babylon would uh, be well versed in. The knowledge of surrounding religions, the knowledge of astrology, um, and the knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures, especially the Old Testament ones, which is what they would be um, familiar with. One of the things that I think is uh, really striking about the journey of the wise men is that it's um, oftentimes you'll hear a sermon about the wise men and the big emphasis will be that you and I should be spiritually open and see God more like the wise men do. And at the face of it, that's true, but that's not really why they're here. Um, the trajectory of all of scripture and the trajectory of this story really is about God. Right? We're reading the birth narrative of Jesus. And it's so it's about God coming to you and I. And the wise men give us this wonderful picture of how he does that in a multitude of ways. Some of which you and I might be familiar with in our own lives. And some of which that we might not. But the point here is that God, just as we know in the incarnation, which is God taking on human flesh. God condescends to reach out to you and I where we're at. He lives among us and redeems us as a man and lives just as we do. Uh, but he reaches down to us and he connects with us at our level. And the wise men are a beautiful picture of that. I think oftentimes when we think about that aspect of the Christian faith, that God is a God that seeks the lost, that comes to you and I, uh, the longer that we've been walking with God, the longer that we become familiar with Scripture, I think we tend to get disconnected from that reality and the sweetness of that reality. And uh, we tend to minimize it or try and clean it up and categorize it in a way that makes more sense to us as people that have been walking with the Lord. Um, but the wise men, if you think about it, these are guys who would be into what we would probably call astrology. Uh, so they would be kind of the modern version of that as they might be like the guys who read tarot cards or tell you they can give you a palm reading or can tell you that they've heard a vision or had a dream and that uh, the spirits want to speak to you and give you a truth, right? Pretty far out stuff. But they also were familiar with the scriptures and they took interest in them and they read about the prophecies that talked about a Jewish Messiah who would come and be a Messiah for the whole world. Uh, they followed that. They were given some kind of a vision of either a scholars or uh, theories abound on what led them to Jerusalem. Some people said that it was a star. Other scholars theorized that it might have actually been an angel that led them there. But they followed some kind of revelation that was given to them that led them to Jerusalem where they came in contact with the priests and the scribes. And when they got there, it led them on this journey. All the while, what do you see? What's the common thread in that? That God is seeking these men who didn't know him personally and leading them to meet Jesus, to meet this promised Messiah. And I think you and I, when we think about that story, we're like, that's a great story for then. But that's not how God works now. And that's not necessarily the case. It's true. We have God's word. We have his spirit. We have the sacraments. Uh, Rob talked about that. In last week's sermon, we have all these tangible, concrete things that God has given us. But that also doesn't exclude the reality that he reaches out to people who are outside of that experience of the church. And he draws them to himself. 
And I think a lot of times for us, it's tempting to minimize that and discredit that and to try to categorize it in a way that makes sense for us. A great example of this is uh, from my own life. Any of you that know me know that I used to be a drug addict. addict. I was a criminal the whole first half of my life. And the way that God saved me actually is through being incarcerated. And then I started reading the Bible and I got introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. And so for a number of years I was in AA. And I believed in all kinds of wild stuff. I was into New Age theology. I used the, um, the system of recovery that was a huge, it was a lifesaver to me, literally, actually, um, as a way to manipulate God into being who I wanted him to be. And so I could kind of create God in my own image while saying I believe in God. But really it was a God who looked more like Brian than the God of the scriptures. And it was just kind of a train wreck. But what God did through that journey for me is he kept reeling me in towards himself. And he kept drawing me to himself. And what I found in that journey was not a God who looked like Brian. Or not a God that did what Brian wanted him to do. But I found the Jesus of the scriptures. And that set me free. It gave me the thing that I was looking for for all those years. You know, I had this experience about, uh, to this point, I had this experience about... um, after being sober for about 10 years, a guy that I grew up with got sober. And I met him at an AA meeting and he brought a Christian friend of his who was not familiar with uh, recovery programs at all. And we were standing in the meeting and the Christian guy came in and we were talking about how AA works, that uh, people can come with whatever growing concept or understanding of a higher power that they have and then hopefully, ideally, spiritually grow into a fuller understanding of God. And I was sharing with him, I was like, yeah, man, this is really beautiful. All these, all these people who are trying to learn about God, isn't that amazing? And the Christian guy, my AA friend who was sober that was Christian, he was like, yeah, it's amazing, praise God. And the guy who was Christian who was not familiar with it just stopped cold and he was like, brother, I can't have any hope for these people at all. And I was like, well, why is that? He's like, because they don't know Jesus. And the tragedy in that moment that I experienced from hearing his perspective was not that he was wrong. He was right. There's no hope for eternal life outside of Jesus. But he missed this beautiful work that God was doing in this room of people who were spiritual seekers, hurting, seeking a God who would reveal themselves to him. That there was this wide open opportunity to see how God was going to work in the hearts of all these people. And also to participate in that. Uh, You know, all that doesn't validate all the things that I use to try and make God um, operate in a way that I wanted him to in those early years. Um, All the wild stuff that I, it doesn't validate any of that. But what it validates is what we see in this birth story of Jesus. That what God does is he consistently seeks you and I out. He seeks us in the midst of all the things that we misunderstand and rearrange to fit where we're at emotionally and spiritually, and he continually draws us to himself. And the incarnation is this like ground zero example of how God does that with all these different types of people. Um, My favorite part about the wise men isn't really that they're spiritual seekers, although I identify with that in my own experience and the experience of a lot of people that I've been able to disciple and share the gospel with. It's actually that they're a sort of preview for all of us. 
You know, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, God describes the nation of Israel as a kingdom of priests who would be a light to the whole world. And God didn't call Israel to himself because they were a special people. He actually did it because they really weren't anything at all. But he raised them into this community of people who were designed to follow him and to walk with him and to be this light to the world outside of them. And the wise men show this beautiful example of how God shines that light into the word, world to people that don't know him and then draw him in to that light so that they could be saved. Uh, Isaiah 60 talks about that. Uh, the prophet speaks about this coming messianic age when the promised Messiah of the scriptures will arrive. And he describes the whole world as living in a spiritual darkness, but that when the Messiah arrives, that light will shine into the whole world and that people will come from all the nations to worship him. And at the birth of Jesus, we see a beautiful picture of that. That here's these men from the east, from these foreign cultures with different worldviews who are arriving and seeking Jesus to meet him. And when they meet him, what do they do? They bow down and they worship him. Because they're overwhelmed with a sense of wonder and joy that the Messiah that they had heard about was real and was here. And they're a preview of you and I. All of us standing here are people who have been drawn from all these different walks of life, different understandings about who God is and who we think he is, to worship him in spirit and truth, to worship Jesus. The beauty of that is that God takes all kinds. And you know that expression like, you know, we take all kinds of crazy. That's a great motto for Resprez, actually, if you think about it. We take all kinds of crazy. I mean, if I'm here preaching, then we take all kinds. <laughs> and the beauty of that is that God takes all kinds of people from all points of the world and brings them into his fold, right? And that's not just true for the spiritual seeker. That's true for people that we could consider the spiritual insiders. And that's the second point. Um, you know, standing in contrast with these wise men who are coming from way outside, uh, we see two figures. The first is King Herod, and there, there could be a whole other sermon point on King Herod. Uh, his reaction to Jesus is very straight up and very honest. What he sees is a political threat to his power. And you see in this text that he makes it very clear that what he wants is to destroy this political threat. Just beyond the the view of our text today, he actually goes on to commit this um, horrific atrocity in having all the children in the town where Jesus was living murdered. Uh, but what he tells the wise man is, hey, we want to know about this Messiah too. So when you find him, tell us where he's at so we can come and worship this child. But really what he wants to do is remove a threat from his life. And uh, it's low-hanging fruit to say that while you and I would never even imagine a day that we would go to such great lengths to stop Jesus, we certainly have all our own little ways that we stop Jesus from invading the areas of our life that we don't want him to rule. Amen? I mean, on any given day, when I wake up, there's like a King Herod in my heart that's raging for control. Uh, that is pretty straightforward, but the, the other group that was really striking for me as I was thinking about this and meditating on this morning's sermon was the priests and the scribes. And if you're unfamiliar with these people, these would be the people in the nation of Israel whose career and calling it was, was to study the scriptures and to know them. And not only know them, but to be able to share them, to teach people about who God was, who that Messiah was that they were waiting for. Uh, and while we don't want to speculate too much about what's not said in the text, 
their silence here is deafening, if you think about it. It literally just says in passing that the king consulted the chiefs, priests, and the scribes, and their response was, yeah, actually, he's, he's actually supposed to be in Bethlehem, which is right down the road. And then exit scene right, the wise men go down the road, and none of the priests or the scribes respond at all. They don't go down there to see him. Geographically, this was literally like six miles down the road. That'd be like if they left here and walked down to Logan Heights, they would be there by lunch. And they could have met Jesus. Uh, I think it's indicative of uh, two things. I think it's indicative of their spiritual state. That they were um, ambivalent to the reality that the promise of the scriptures might actually have come true right in their presence, right around the corner from them. Um, and that ambivalence really is um, indicative of the spiritual indifference that they had had. It's hard to have like a good, if you think about it, it'd be like if you and I, if we're standing here after service and somebody walked up and said, hey, you know, all, all the leading biblical scholars have been saying for the past several months that Jesus is actually living down by the waterfront right off of Harbor Boulevard and that he's there. There's a bunch of people who are flying in today they're going to go meet him. And then your response was, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty wild, man. Okay, great. Well, I'll see you next Sunday. Nothing. These priests and these scribes were uninterested in knowing who Jesus was. And, and I think part of what it is is that spiritual ambivalence that they had was really due to familiarity. What they had uh, right in front of them was King Herod. That was a king that they could deal with and that they were gaining something from. What they had in the scriptures was a promise of a coming king who is greater. But they were indifferent about that. And that ambivalence really gave rise, I think, to a form of spiritual pride as well. If you notice, there's no desire shown in the text anywhere for them to follow the wise men and find out if the prophecy had actually been fulfilled. Uh, and if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, later on in the story, the, the priests and the scribes will not be ambivalent towards Jesus. They will be very much opposed to him and they'll try and murder him. But here, they're able to write everything off. And that goes in a bunch of different directions. They're very dismissive. And if you think about it, they're probably standing in the court. They get dragged into the court by their king. Here's these weird guys from the east. And they're like, yeah, well, the prophecy says that he's supposed to be born down the road in Bethlehem. So the wise men say, yeah, we had this vision. We are led here. We're going to go meet him. Their response was probably something along the lines of like, well, who are these dudes anyways? I mean, these guys are just, they're from Babylon. And what do we, who cares what they say? Yeah. Uh, I think that you and I often do that in our own lives, too. We can do that if you're a Christian, we can do that with different faith traditions. If I could just air our own laundry, if you're familiar with the Reformed tradition, we're notorious for doing this. Uh, I think one of the biggest things that I, I struggled with myself, especially in my seminary days, is you would learn all these really exciting ideas about theology and about scripture, and then it would, we would weaponize it in a way, and we would use it to discredit other traditions that we didn't agree with. So we'd find ourselves like, oh, what do those guys know? They're just Methodists, man. I mean, really, what's, you know, who cares what these guys think? Oftentimes, the longer that we get familiar with, and this is the shocking part for me, it shocks me how often I find myself falling for this trap too. 
the more familiar we get with the way God works, even in the miraculous, we can tend to like minimize that, clean them up, clean it up, and sterilize it in a way that that we could be comfortable with. So we see God doing these radical things, and we tend to just box it up so it doesn't really disturb our equilibrium or challenge us. We see this often with new believers. You know, how often have you been around and you see new believers say something that's outside of our experience? Like, you know, God talked to me in a dream last night. You know, God gave me this vision. I feel like he's speaking to me all the time. And you're like, <laughs> totally. God's speaking to you in dreams. That's real cute. Take a seat. We're going to do the sermon. We can talk about it afterwards. That's adorable. This guy thinks Jesus has been visiting him in dreams. That's, that's cute. Uh, we don't like to think that we think that way, but oftentimes we get so familiar with God, right? We get so familiar with how God works in the miraculous that we just get complacent. And that complacency feeds into a sort of contempt that we had for it and a spiritual arrogance that allows us to discredit those things and to not really see them for the wonder that they are. Think about the Christmas story. We're so familiar with the Christmas story that we get used to it. And why is it here? Why do we celebrate it, not only as a tradition, but why is it one of the centerpieces of Scripture? It's this anchor that God gives us to recalibrate ourselves spiritually and emotionally to what God does for us and how he strengthens our faith. That's one of the things that I appreciated about the sermon we heard last week, as Rob talked about the reality that for most of us, the spiritual pilgrimage is really this journey in the ordinary right? We're just kind of grinding it out most days, but then it's marked by these super radical events that God gives us as spiritual anchors. This is one of those things that God gives us that we're called to focus on, to be strengthened by, and encouraged by in our faith. Um, the spiritual ambivalence that creeps into all of our hearts is a real threat, and the spiritual pride that it creates um, a temptation for is real for every one of us. Uh, and it does cause us to miss out on these wonderful acts of God that are given to us as gifts, especially things like the incarnation, the reality that God literally has come and lived among us to redeem us from our own sin and our own brokenness. And those things are given to us to help us to appreciate uh, the value and worth of what God does for us, the lengths that he'll go to uh, out of his love for you and I. And those things become anchors for us, for our soul. Um, but when we get so familiar with those that we take them for granted, they really do cause us to miss out on these waypoints for us in our journey with the Lord in our faith. Uh, the contrast between the wise men and the scribes is intentional. But that doesn't mean that this is a sermon about the wise men. You know, let's all try harder to be more like the wise men this week and be spiritual seekers and open. Okay? Uh, we all know that's not something we could do with any kind of consistency. Spiritually, we all wax and we wane. We grow weary. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we should try to be open to how God works in ways that are outside of the box of what we think about God and how he may be working in our lives. Uh, it's more so a reminder that we're called to intentionally remember who God is what he's done, especially here in his birth and coming to live among us, and the lengths that he goes to redeem and seek out the lost. Uh, and, sh and one of the ways that Matthew does that, all throughout his gospel and here in this account, 
is that he does that by showing us how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises. So I heard a missionary once describe the entire Bible in three short sentences. I've never heard it described any better. He said the whole Bible can be described is the Old Testament is Jesus is coming. The Gospels tell us that Jesus is here. And the New Testament promises us that Jesus will return. And so Matthew phones in on that and says that these prophetic promises all point towards the arrival of Jesus, which is happening right here in his birth. Uh, two examples that we can take a look at uh, real quickly together. He quotes uh, from two Old Testament prophets. He quotes from uh, Micah 5 and Hosea 11. And he does that to point out two things, that Jesus is in fact the promised Messiah and to remind us of what he's done and what he does in seeking us out and saving us. So first, Matthew quotes uh, Micah 5, 2. And that's the point where the scribes actually look at the Old Testament scriptures and highlight, yeah, he's going to be actually the Messiah. is going to be born in Bethlehem, which is right down the road. And uh, Micah 2, 5, 2 goes on to say, from you will come a ruler. And Matthew writes at the end, who will shepherd my people Israel. And if you've been able to read the scriptures, the concept of a shepherd is a very familiar concept in the Bible. It would be familiar to uh, the nation of Israel uh, as a cultural um, concept of something that was um, of a sacrificial servant. Uh, shepherds were thought of as people that were sacrificial by nature. Uh, they would give themselves to care for the animals that they were in charge of. They're also familiar with most of Matthew's readers. He was writing to a largely Jewish audience. And so they would be familiar with that. The more you read scripture, the more you see that God speaks about uh, shepherds in different concepts. He does that in both positive and negative ways. Uh, an example of God speaking about bad shepherds is uh, from Isaiah chapter 34. The prophet talks about the rulers of Israel. He describes them as false shepherds who prey on his people and take advantage of them. Later in the same chapter, he talks about himself as a good shepherd who gathers his people together and cares for them and leads them. Uh, perhaps one of the most famous psalms, perhaps the most famous psalm, is a Psalm 23 called the Shepherd Psalm. And that starts where the psalmist exclaims, the Lord is my shepherd. And it talks about how God leads the psalmist um, along quiet paths and across the path of righteousness for his namesake. Uh, in Matthew also, Matt, Matthew's going to draw on that later on in uh, the 18th chapter when he talks about Jesus. He talks about one of the most famous parables that Jesus gives in the New Testament. That's the parable of the lost sheep. And Jesus says, point blank in Matthew 18, I've come to seek that which is lost. I've come to save sinners from their sinfulness. And then he gives the parable of the lost sheep and he describes God's nature in saying, look, God is like a shepherd who has 99 sheep but takes great joy in seeking out the one who is lost and redeeming him. Jesus builds on that in the Gospel of John. In John 10, he says straight up, I am the good shepherd. And then he goes on to say, I lay down my life for the sheep so that I can save them and redeem them. And what that reminds us of when Matthew uses that idea of a shepherd and points out that this child Jesus is that shepherd, 
is not just a, about the incarnation as this miracle of God living among us and taking on human flesh, but it really highlights the fact that this is the beginning of his mission. And a central piece of that mission is as a shepherd, he saves us and guides us through the spiritual wilderness that we're in now. Uh, it also is highlighted in the fact that he points out this large biblical concept, uh, especially from the prophet Hosea. And he quotes Hosea 11.1 1 here. In verses uh, in Matthew 2.13 through 15, Joseph is warned that uh, King Herod plans to kill Jesus and to escape into Egypt to take his wife and his child into Egypt and to wait until Herod's death takes place, which he does. And Matthew is drawing on the prophet Hosea, and he quotes that as a fulfillment of the prophet. What's interesting about that is when Hosea writes that verse, he's actually looking back behind him to a historical event that had already taken place in the history of Israel, something called the Exodus. And if you're not familiar with that, that was this magnificent act of liberation that God performed for the nation of Israel. As a people, they were enslaved in Egypt, and God goes to them. He raises up a liberator in Moses, and he leads them out of that bondage and slavery and sets them free, leads them through the wilderness, and leads them into this promised land that he gives to them into an entirely new life. And so he sets his people free from this form of bondage and slavery. And so Hosea is looking back to this historical event. Matthew is seeing that and saying, this is fulfilled in the life and work of Jesus in a way. And what he's highlighting is that the entire mission in life of Jesus is a greater exodus. This greater mission where he liberates God's people from spiritual slavery and bondage. And so you see that if you watch the whole trajectory of Jesus' life. He is the God who lives in heaven, comes down from heaven, is born and takes on human flesh, lives as you and I do, goes through all the challenges that we do, goes through the spiritual wilderness that you and I face and are overwhelmed by, but does not sin. And he goes through that, and like a good shepherd, he also comes to us, seeks us out, and leads us through that spiritual wilderness and sets us free. And so when Matthew is quoting that, he's looking at that historical event, and he's saying this is really a picture, and the fulfillment of that picture is in the life and work of Jesus. And he is that good shepherd that seeks you and I out and saves us and leads us through the spiritual wilderness of this fallen world. And that's, if you think about Psalm 23 as a shepherd psalm that depicts what God does for his people, that's why it ends with the verse that it does. It ends with this beautiful verse where the psalmist reflects on God as his shepherd and he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because God leads him through that exodus, through the spiritual wilderness and saves him. God does that for you and I, no matter where we're at on our spiritual journey. It's a promise that he gives to us that we see taking on human form and living in the real world in the life of Jesus. So if you are here and you're a spiritual seeker and you're not sure where you're at with Jesus, that means that Jesus' offer of eternal life is for you. And it doesn't matter where you're at. We believe that if you are here and you are seeking Jesus, that's because he's brought you here and there's no coincidence in that. And you are welcome. 
And we would like to help you with that journey. We would like to help you know Jesus as your shepherd and as your Savior and your Lord. If you are more like the priests and the scribes this week, where you are so familiar with Scripture, you find yourself discrediting most of what he does in other people's lives, or maybe you're in your own life, this is for you as well. It's this wonderful reminder for us, us as his people, and it was for me this week, that God is constantly our shepherd, that he's constantly seeking us out wherever we're at spiritually, wherever we're at in our journey of faith, and reminding us that he is leading us through faithfully to that promised land to eternal life. And because of that, we can look at this story, story that maybe we've read for the first time this year, or a story that maybe we've read a thousand times and see the sense of wonder that it is. That God loves us so much that he came and lived among us to save us. And we can find a sustainable sense of joy in that in any season. And just as a final point of consideration, you know, when you read this gospel account and the birth account of Jesus, it is so evangelical in nature. And what do I mean when I say that? It's so outward facing, right? God pushes his love and his power out into a fallen world. That's why you and I are here. Because he pushed his love out into our lives. And he grabbed us in the midst of all the craziness that we believe. And he's drawing us to himself. And in what may be the craziest year of all of our lives, we have this beautiful gift of hope that we could share with other people. And I think about this all the time this year, you guys. When I look back on my life in 10 years, I don't want to look back and think about all the things that I could have shared with people about the hope of Jesus and the gospel in 2020 and then realize all the things that I spent my time thinking about and talking about. We don't have to do that. We can give people a sense of hope and an offer of a future that never fades because we have a beautiful shepherd in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray and give thanks to God for that. Lord, uh, we thank you that you are... Um, Lord, we thank you that you are not like us. We thank you that you are so different and yet you are so consistent to your nature. You are so consistent to your word that when you tell us that you are a God of love and mercy, that you show us that in these extraordinary ways. And, and what an extraordinary example that we have in the birth and the life of Jesus. And we thank you for um, your love and your kindness to us. Father, I thank you that you have given us... Uh, your scriptures, you've given us your spirit that helps us understand them. And I pray that every one of us would be encouraged and strengthened by that. That when we read this story, whether it's the first time or for the thousandth time, that we would be encouraged and filled with wonder that you love us so much that you would go to such great lengths to save us and to guide us through this life. Father, we pray that you would make us people who are so filled with gratitude that we are constantly looking for opportunities to love and to serve one another and to give a testimony to a world gone mad by how we love and serve each other and sacrifice for each other. And especially that we would look for opportunities to share this gift of hope and to share the gospel with those that don't know you. 
that they would come to know you as their Father and their Lord and their Shepherd as well. It's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.